reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O ye of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Are the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Even though the subject of the monologue took place 150 years ago, had you been in that group that was being guided through the Alamo, you would have sworn that, it, that the person who was leading the tour group had actually been there herself because her monologue was absolutely magnificent. The detail that she gave regarding the historical circumstances were absolutely beyond belief. And the tour guide itself was mesmerized as she crescendoed toward the finale of what everyone there gathered to be a perfect presentation. Then she got to the end. And with emphasis, she punched a hole in the air with her index finger and said, and remember, this is the most important event in all of history. Wait a minute, you, you had me up till then. The most important event in all of history. Now, you don't have to be a native Texan, and you don't have to live in San Antonio to know about the Alamo. It is a site, certainly, that memorializes a colorful and important part of Texas lore. But to call it the most important event in, in all of history is carrying, remember, the Alamo one pep rally past reality. I suggest tonight that there are more important things that we need to remember. And I want to suggest three for your consideration, and I hope that you'll think very deeply and reflect upon these three things that we need to remember as God's people. Because when I was introducing this subject this morning at the end of the service, I said that in my estimation, one of the greatest struggles that we as God people have is that we have a tendency to forget. And that's one of the things that I want us to focus on tonight, what it is that God wants us to remember every day of our lives. And so I want to begin with this list with one of the simplest, but one that is historically accurate because we can check the Bible on what I'm about to tell you. First of all, we need to remember what God wants. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to have faith. That's for sure. That's one thing that he wants. And it doesn't really matter whether you're living under the patriarchal law, the Mosaic law, or now as we are under the Christian law in the Christian era. God still has always wanted the same thing. Even though his relationship to man has changed somewhat in the giving of the various laws, God has always wanted people to depend upon him. And to have the kind of faith that will perpetuate our Christian, uh, at least in this era, our Christian progress day by day. So that we, as Andrew just prayed, will become more like Jesus every day of our lives. You know, you can talk about faith in the Bible, but it's very difficult to say the word faith without also saying the name Abraham in the same breath. I believe that we would all agree that there's a reason why the Bible refers to him as the father of the faithful. I know that you know this story, but I want to go back and hit the highlights of it because they're worth remembering. You may remember that the Bible says that Abraham was some 75 years old when God abruptly notified him that he was getting a job transfer. But God also, in that, those instructions, eliminated certain 
minute details like, oh, I don't know where he would be going and what he would be doing once he got there. God said, I want you to walk off the map. I want you to just trust me. And I want you to do and go where I'm about to tell you to go, even though he had not told him what that destination might be. In fact, here's what the Bible says that God said to Abraham that day, and we know this because it is recorded to us or for us in sacred scripture. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. You might want to turn there because we're going to be looking at a couple of verses in chapter 12 in the course of this discussion. In Genesis 12 and verse 1, the Bible says to, that God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your country, your people, and go to a land. Watch this carefully that I will show you. Mia and I have moved several times in our married life, but every time we moved, every time we packed the U-Haul or the Penske or whatever it was that we were moving in, we always had the blessed assurance of knowing where we were going to wind up. Once we hit the road, we always knew, here's where we're going to be, here's where we've bought a house or we're renting or whatever, and so we're going to be moving into a new house. We always knew what the destination was. And the Bible says that Abraham's faith had to stretch at that moment because God didn't give him any of those details. In fact, if I had been, I'm just going to confess to you tonight, if I'd been in Abraham's sandals, I probably would have said something like, excuse me, you want me to just pack my stuff, leave Ur, my hometown where I've always lived, and just go? Destination and assignment unknown, just like that. And that's right. I would have asked those questions before I ever packed my first pair of socks. But Abraham didn't. The Bible says that when God gave him these instructions in Genesis 12 and verse 1, he just packed his bags and he headed for the door. No wonder it's difficult to say the word faith without saying the name Abraham in the same breath. I can almost hear the conversation with his next door neighbor going on vacation, Abraham. Uh, no, we're moving. Oh, you're leaving her? Yeah. Where are you going? Frankly, have no idea. Well, are you going to have your mail forwarded to whatever address that you're moving to? No, I, because we don't know where we're going to be living. You see, AAA did not make any maps for where Abraham and his family were going. God told him to walk off the map, and Abraham started packing. No wonder he's in Faith's Hall of Fame. And here's what Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 says about him. The Bible says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance. And he, I love this last part, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, if that isn't faith, I don't know what faith is. And he went out, verbs of action, not knowing where he was going. You see, all Abraham was operating on at that juncture in his life, and remember, it wasn't just Abraham by himself, it was his entire family that was moving. All they had was just to trust and, and rely upon God. I think that's the challenge for us as well. I've often said from this pulpit there are two types of faith discussed in Scripture. One has to do with the embracing of proper facts. That is understanding who God is and what he has done, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And we cannot please God without that kind of faith, the Hebrews writer says. But faith is also used not just in the embracing of proper facts, the faith as it's used in Scripture, but it also has to do with the degree of our trust and reliance upon God. And so it's altogether possible that we as God's children may be squared away on the first kind of faith, but still be struggling or at least growing in the second kind of faith. And I hope we are growing because that ought to be a lifelong project. We ought to every day be working on our faith, upon our trust and reliance upon God and seeing that, that God has always taken care of us and he always will. 
By the way, another version of Hebrews 11 and verse 8 reads like this. Abraham trusted God, and when God told him to leave home and go far away to another land, he went not even knowing where he was going. And you know, if you've read Scripture, that God wasn't finished. He then proceeded to make another promise to Abraham that was an even bigger trust tester. Look down one verse, this time Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. I will give you many descendants and they will become a great nation. Now if you know Abraham and Sarah's circumstances at that time, at that juncture in their life, that's why I say that this may have been a bigger trust tester. This was more difficult, perhaps, for them to believe and to accept God's word on than the idea of, well, let's just move someplace that we don't even know where it is yet. I mean, Abraham did not have any children, and so how do you have many descendants if you don't have any children? I think that is an altogether appropriate and legitimate question. And notice the language there. He not only says you're going to have descendants, he says you're going to have many descendants. Here's the follow-up question. How do you have many when you don't have any? And Abraham had to have wondered that when God gave him that promise. And just so Abraham would not think that his hearing was going, God said it to him again. Three chapters later, in Genesis chapter 15, this time verse 5. He gives him an object lesson. Remember, they didn't have PowerPoint back then, but God used the universe as an object lesson for Abraham. And he told him to go outside of his tent and to look toward the heavens. And he said this in Genesis 15, 5, look at the sky, try to count the stars. You will have as many descendants as that. And then what? Two and a half decades of baffling silence. That's what. He followed up his dual promise by not saying anything more about it and not fulfilling that promise for 25 years. And the Bible says, as a testament to the great faith of Abraham, that Abraham believed anyway. Folks, I'm telling you that a guy who's got the guts to leave home for an unknown address has a five-star faith. No wonder he's written up in Faith's Hall of Fame. And five years after God made that promise, they threw Abraham's 80th birthday party. Well, guess what? Still no child. Now 85, no child. 90, no child. 95, no child. 99, Abraham had his 99th birthday. It's time to give it up, Abraham. There ain't going to be no tot in your tent. But Abraham said, yes, there is. Because God said so. Don't you love that? There's the faith of Abraham. There's the faith that needs to be emulated. Come on, Sarah was 90 and as infertile as any 90-year-old woman has a right to be. And Abraham was pushing 100. And the Hebrews writer summed it up in a single sentence in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12. It says that Abraham, in regards to Abraham and Sarah, they were as good as dead. You know, that sounds kind of almost discourteous and unkind, doesn't it? If someone were to walk up to you, you're assuming your parents are still living, and say, how are your folks doing? And you said, good as dead. Uh, that wasn't very courteous or kind. But I believe that if you look at the backstory, and you compare this to Romans 4, verse 19, where Paul to the Romans is talking about this very subject and said that Abraham did not even count factor in the deadness of his own body. In all likelihood, they're talking about their childbearing uh, and reproductive uh, possibilities. That's, that's how they were as good as dead. And so that, that, that time was passed. That window had closed. And so it was inconceivable, 
pun intended, that they would have a child at that age. Abraham passing out cigars at 100, and Sarah fixing formula at 90. I mean, that was the Old Testament equivalent of a knee slapper. And God dangled that promise in front of Abraham and Sarah and filled their hearts with hope and then sat on his hands and watched them totter into old age. What was he doing? What was it that God wanted from this good couple? The answer is faith. He wanted faith. He wanted them to trust him and rely upon him absolutely. 100%. He wanted Abraham to believe even when it wasn't reasonable. And you and I know that Abraham came through and he believed. And if you read the Bible, you know that God came through and kept his promise as well. And those who hung around long enough saw Abraham playing this little piggy went to market with his very own son. Just as God had promised him a quarter of a century earlier that he would do. And that is a great big industrial strength faith for you. And that's why all these years later, we're sitting in a church building on a Sunday night talking about Abraham's trust and reliance upon God. Because that's something that you and I ought to look at and seek with all of our hearts to emulate. I mentioned this morning that there are people in the public eye that don't deserve our attention, much less our imitation. But fellow, I'm telling you, there's a man right here that we need to look at and say, that's the kind of faith that I want to have. That's the kind of trust that I want to be able to develop and cultivate in my life. I want to be able to trust God absolutely 100%. When things are going my way, I want to be able to trust in God. When things are not going my way, I want to be able to trust in God. I want to have the absolute assurance that God is going to always keep his promises to me. And I believe that that's the assurance, the blessed assurance that Abraham had in his own heart. You see, there's a couple of kinds of faith other than the ones that we just referred to a moment ago that I think that we need to factor in here. There's a kind of faith that you can respond to with action. That is, God says to do something, you respond appropriately, then you have been faithful in your execution of whatever God's orders might have been. And then there's a more demanding faith. And I believe when I describe it and define it, you're going to agree that this is, in fact, a more demanding kind of faith. Because it's a faith that you can't answer with action. You can only respond to with trust. Allow me to illustrate. When God told Abraham to pack and leave home, there was something that he could do about that. He could pack his bags and leave home. And we know that the biblical record says that's exactly what Abraham did. Now, not without a lump in his throat. But still, he did it. But when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, there was nothing he could do about that. Because we know that Abraham and Sarah had been trying to have a, a child ever since they were, they were newlyweds. Here was a promise that Abraham just had to accept, totally, totally trusting God for its fulfillment. Now, you and I, here's the application. You and I face off with faith at those two levels in our own lives. Maybe right now there's some experience, some episode in your own life that you're thinking of that certainly would meet these criteria. You think God wants you to go to the mission field, there's something you can do about that. You can sell your house, you can find the support, you can pack your bags and you can go. You think God wants you to make a financial gift, there's something you can do about that. You can get out your checkbook, write a check, and you can make a financial donation to a worthy cause. You think God wants you to stand above the muck and the gossip and the dishonesty down at work? There's something you can do about that. You can draw a line in the sand and say, this far, no farther. I refuse to participate in that kind of behavior or in that kind of language. But it's faith of a different dimension. Hear me, church. 
It is faith of a different dimension when your hands are tied and there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is just trust God to keep his promises. When the cancer has spread and the doctors have met with you with grim faces and said there is nothing more that we can do, then there's nothing more that you can do except to trust God to see you through, no matter how that may eventuate. When your loved ones are dying and you've exhausted every possible source of help and medical assistance, there's nothing that you can do but trust God. And probably if you're more than 12 years old, maybe even less, you've had that experience. You've known of people in your own family or loved ones in your circle of acquaintance who've, who've gone through that. And, and when you've given a lifetime of loyalty to your company and then suddenly one day the boss walks in and gives you the pink slip, you're too old to be an attractive candidate for any other job. You have absolutely no idea how you're going to make the ends meet financially for your family. There's nothing that you can do except just send out more resumes and trust God and when your heart is breaking and the tears are splashing on the divorce papers there's nothing that you can do at that moment except trust God but I want you to know this and if you forget everything else I say tonight dear friends please take this home with you God honors the faith that honors him are you hearing me God honors the faith that honors him the faith that trusts him even when everything is fuzzy. The faith that trusts him even when you cannot see through the fog of all the difficulties that are going on in your life. Hebrews 11 verse 1, one translation of this great definition of faith reads like this. What is faith? It is that confident assurance that something that we want is going to happen. It is the certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us even, here's the kicker, even when we cannot see it up ahead. That's what real faith is. I hear faith being so used and misused in our vernacular, in our society today, because almost without exception, when I hear faith used in a casual conversation, it has to do with a blind leap in the dark. Here's the facts, and then here's the faith that we have in the absence of facts. Like the little boy said, faith is believing something I know ain't so. That's the way the world views faith. The Bible definition of faith has everything to do with our trust and our confidence and our reliance upon God based on the facts that God has given us about the nature of this physical universe, but also as important, the nature of our relationship to God and the preciousness of our relationship as his children. You see, we are his sons and his daughters if we're a part of his forever family, and that makes us special. Again, God hasn't chosen us because we're special. We're special because God has chosen us. Don't ever forget that. But there's another thing. Faith is fortified by a peak at the past. And so not only remember what God wants, but also remember in the second place what God has done. And that can be provable and reconfirmable if there is such a word. Well, there is. You just heard it. Reconfirmable. I like that. By looking at the biblical historical record. And that, that's one of the reasons, too, by the way. I'm preaching stuff I hadn't planned on preaching tonight, but here it goes. Why we're always encouraging you to get into this book. Because if you will read these lessons for yourself on a daily basis, your faith will grow. It can't help but grow. But if you're not reminded of these biblical truths and what God has done for his people down through the ages, then you're going to forget. 
I mean, your memory is not going to be good enough to be able to remember at the time when the, when, the, when the heat is on and when you are in the heat of battle, you'll not be able to remember what God has promised for you and for all of his people in those circumstances. So please remember what God has done. And the only way you can do that is spending time in this good book. You may remember back in the Old Testament in the book we call Exodus, with ten eye-popping plagues, the Bible says that God shook the grip that Pharaoh had on those brick-making slaves till he finally, after the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn, caused Pharaoh to finally say, and there are all kinds of compromises between plague one and plague ten, and you've read the story, you know that, finally causing Pharaoh to say, I will, in fact, Moses, let your people go. But you know from reading the record that even then, God's miraculous care for his people was only just beginning. You think that that 10 lesson correspondence course that we call the plagues was something. You just watch what God can do when those people are let go. And then they began to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In the weeks that followed, the Israelites watched as God opened the way for them by dividing the Red Sea as they were trying to escape from the Egyptian armies, and how that he poured out fresh drinking water, not only for them, but also for their herds, from, of all things, a rock, turned back and attacked by an army of angry nomads, covered the ground morning after morning with free food that is referred to in the Bible simply as manna. Everything Israel needed. That's the point of all of this. God supplied for them in rich abundance. Can you imagine? I know we've talked about this before, but you, can you imagine going, I don't know where the next meal is going to come from. God said, don't worry about it. I'll rain down bread from heaven. Well, we're tired of the bread. Well, I'll, I'll give you some meat to go along with. Everything that God saw their need for, he met their need for instantaneously. And then one day, God said to Moses, come here a minute. And he summoned Moses to Sinai for a 40-day crash course in the law. That old mountain belts thunder and lightning and smoke, and it scared the stew out of everybody that was back in the camp. You know, fear has a way of provoking promises, and that was true of the Israelites as well. And here's the Bible for this. Exodus 19 in verse 8, the Israelite people, when they saw the mountain belching smoke and doing what he was doing, doing its thing, they said, and I'm quoting, we will do everything the Lord has said. That's the promise of the people. Well, you flip just one page of the calendar before they violated that vow. One month and ten days, you can check it for yourself, after making that promise, they came whining to Aaron, Exodus 32, verse 1. We do not know, and I, I just know they had to have said it in a whiny voice, don't you? We do not know what has happened to Moses. Make us a God to go before us. And the old weak-kneed Aaron just crumbled, capitulated to their commands. And when Moses came down from the mountain after meeting with God himself, he found them worshiping a bloodless, breathless, brainless bovine made out of 14 carat earrings. And he was angry. And you know what happened then. But the point of the story is not to supply all the details in regards to those that minutia that you're already familiar with, but to remind you that it only took them 40 days to forget everything that God had been doing for them for all those years. Now, I don't know how you respond on the inside to that reminder. But my typical response every time I read this account in scripture is to say what in the world were they thinking in fact to read the the Hebrew history in its entirety a number of times quite a number of times we have to ask that same question don't what were they thinking 
I mean, how soon they forget God's provisions and his care for them and his providence every step of the way. But we also need to cut them a little slack. Because the wandering in the wilderness was, in fact, not a picnic. It wasn't like, what are you going to do next, Israelites? We're going to Disney World. No, it was tough out there. In fact, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 15 may be a passage that you're not familiar with. The Bible describes the circumstances out in the wilderness wanderings like this. It was a vast and dread, dreadful desert with venomous snakes and scorpions. Okay, you had me at venomous snakes. Well, they'd do better when they got to the promised land, wouldn't they, where things were more comfortable? Well, don't bet on it. Here's what God told Moses in Deuteronomy 31. Verse 16, then we're going to skip down to verse 21. God told Moses, these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant that I made with them. Verse 21, I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land. Don't you imagine how Moses felt at that moment when God said, "This is you, you think that things are going to get better when you actually are occupying the promised land. Here is the propensity of the people, and here's what's going to happen. And so when Moses came down and gave them, them the Ten Commandments, he spiked his sermon. By the way, there was a sermon. He spiked his sermon with these words. This is Deuteronomy 8, and I'm skipping around starting with verse 2. Remember how... Moses to the Israelites, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Watch this. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. And sure enough, that is exactly what they did. I've got a personal question that I have to ask. And it's simply this. Do you? Do you forget what God has done for you? I know I do. And that's too bad because a short memory is a surefire way to short-circuit our faith. How easy it is to wallow in the poor me mud of a poor memory. To walk to the mailbox to get one of those big fat brown, bet you can't look at this without sweating envelopes that has the internal revenue service on the return address. They want to have another look at one of your tax returns and all of a sudden you're sweating bullets. And you know exactly what they really want. They want more of your money. Their unstated mission statement is, you make it, we take it. And so you're walking back to the house, and you're sweating. You're wondering what in the world is going on, and which year is it that they want to examine more closely. You see how it is. Just one little piece of mail can get us to sweating bullets and all bent out of shape to get us anxious and angry, and we sweat and we stew. And we forget God's year after year after year, guidance and protection and providence of us. How quickly we forget. I've seen times, and I've told you this before, when I didn't know how I was going to make the house payment. Or months when I couldn't make the electric payment and the gas payment in the same month, I was going to have to choose between one or the other. Times when we didn't have enough grocery money to feed six hung hungry mouths. Times when... Well, you know, because you probably have been there at least at some point in your life as well. 
but God has always come through. Somehow the bills have always been paid, but still the slightest shortage can throw us into a tailspin. And why is that? Short memory. That's the only plausible answer that I have. That's what it is. Let me remind you of just a little of something what God has done before we quit tonight. And this carries us back to the text that was read in your hearing at the beginning of this lesson. With five loaves of bread and two fish, God fed 5,000 families. And when the picnic was over, his disciples picked up the leftovers, and the Bible says there was 12 whole basketfuls. Three days later, with seven loaves of bread and a short string of fish, he fed 4,000 more. Another seven basketfuls of scraps. That's Matthew 14 and Matthew 15. You can check it on your own time. Now, it would be hard to forget an experience like that, wouldn't it? Well, maybe not as hard as we imagine. By supper time, Jesus' own disciples were as hungry as bears, and their spirits were just about as congenial. A dozen growling stomachs and grumbling spirits, and they came to the Lord and wanted to know what is there to eat. Didn't anybody at least bring a basket of fish sticks from the last picnic we had? Uh, you know, if Guinness had been around, surely they would have warranted a page in his book. World's record for the shortest memory. And now here is the ending that I said that you may not remember. Jesus chided his disgruntled disciples. Here's the Bible. I think this is a part of our reading earlier. Matthew 16, 9 and 10. He's talking to his disciples. This is an eyeball-to-eyeball conversation. Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls that you gathered? Remember, notice again how he began that discussion with them. Don't you remember? Here's the interpretation of Jesus' short sermon to his disciples. I just got through feeding 9,000 families' families without breaking a sweat. A lunch for a dozen isn't going to be a problem, don't you think? And isn't it sad that he had to talk to his disciples in that kind of way? I appreciate the phrase that he put in there. Don't you remember? Well, no, to be truthful, I really don't remember. I don't remember the exact day when I was strapped for cash to be able to pay the electric bill. I don't even remember what year it was now as I look back over the, the tapestry of my life. It was gut-wrenching at the time, and I remember sitting there with my checkbook going, what am I going to do? But until I started working on this lesson, I'd forgotten all about it. And, and I don't want to forget. I, I really don't. Because faith puts on muscle when you survive the storm, folks, and you know beyond a doubt that God was the one who got you through it. When there's no other explanation than God's providential hand stepping in and taking care of the situation, someone has said a faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I believe that with all of my heart. And yet we don't want to have our faith tested in order to be, have, be able to have that strong kind of faith at the end of the story. But when you know that you did not have the knowledge, the ability, or the resources to be able to make it on your own, when there can be no pride, just grateful acknowledgement that God stepped in and saved the day. Think about the disasters in your own past for a few seconds. You look back over your shoulder at those circumstances, at those tough times, and, and, and they don't seem too bad, do they? So always remember what God has done. And finally, and this is the short part of the lesson as we conclude, remember that God always keeps his promises. Joshua succeeded Moses as Israel's commander-in-chief. 
He led them to the promised land. He led them into battle. He divided the land among them. He mediated their squabbles and all of those things that Moses had been doing for the people now was the responsibility of Joshua, and he did it well. He did it faithfully, and it was an overwhelming and arduous task for this man. And when he was old and about to die, I'm talking about Joshua now. When Joshua was old and just about to die, he reminded them that God had made good on every one of his promises. Joshua 23 Verse 14, listen to the Bible, dear church. You know that not one, not one of the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every one has been fulfilled. Not one has failed, end quote. I'm here to tell you, God keeps his promises always. Remember that. And when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he won't. And when he says, I will be with you always, he will. And when he says, I will forgive and forget your sins, he does. And when he says, I am going to prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with me where there is no more tears, he is. I'm simply saying that the decision to become a Christian tonight is a determination, a commitment on our part to remember, to remember what he has done on the cross for every one of us, not just those of us in this building, for the whole world, anyone who's ever walked this planet, Jesus died for them and for us. What he has promised to do for us if we will obey him, and that is to forgive our sins and wipe every one of them from his book of memory, and what he has vowed to do for us in the future. There really is a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the... We sing it with me. There's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by we shall meet on that beautiful shore if you want to sign on to the lord's army he's taking volunteers right now while we stand and while we sing.